Hi, I'm Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Jesus and His People. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16, verses 4 to 15, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, A Transformed Vision. Strangely enough, you know, in this series on John 15 through 17, in a series about the danger of falling away from Christ and of the reality that there's a cost to be paid to remain in Christ, I want to talk about Valentine's Day. <laughs> you might wonder where in the world I came up with something as preposterous as that, but, but hear me out. Valentine's Day is something we now associate with romantic love. You know, my wife will tell you that, you know, we just started dating and she had no idea if I were serious or what. So on that first Valentine's Day for us, I was out of province, but I sent her 12 sweetheart roses. They were delivered to her door along with a note from me. And to this day, I still think I made huge inroads into her heart in my trying to impress her that I was 100% serious about our beginning relationship. You know, Valentine's Day is about romantic love. We all know that. But where do we get that name, Valentine? Well, Valentine was actually a Christian pastor in the third century. The Roman Emperor Claudius II personally interrogated him somewhere around AD 270, tried to convert him to paganism. Pastor Valentine refused. He was beaten with clubs, and yet he spoke lovingly to the emperor and gently urged the emperor to surrender to the love of Christ. See, Valentine died a martyr, but he's remembered because he was like Christ who returned love to those who murdered him. And in essence, that's part of the cost of following Jesus. I feel we've forgotten the example of Pastor Valentine. You know, in truth, his story, not mine about sweetheart roses, but his is the story of love. And as we've begun our study of John 15 to 17, perhaps we're helped to return to John 15, verse 18, which said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And yet, as we remember the hatred against Christ, we also remember Jesus' amazing prayer for those soldiers that nailed him to the cross. But we also remember his love for his disciples, you know, as he's telling them not just of the sufferings that lay before him, but also of the sufferings that lay before them. You know, they eventually would be treated like him, and they would have to learn to react in the same way as he did. And Jesus had said, they hated me without cause. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And when that happens, you'll have to remember, I told you in advance. And as we begin our passage today, let's focus on the first section, John 16, verse 4b. And there Jesus said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Why? Well, in a sense, Jesus absorbed the hatred of his enemies and the disciples were shielded from that blast. But now he says, I'm going away. And the hatred's going to be directed straight at you. So on the last night before Jesus was crucified, on that very dark night, as he himself was taken up in thoughts of his own death and the horrible cross and the future of his disciples and the necessity of preaching the gospel to the world, and of course, the disciples are frightened out of their wits, there on that night, he spoke great words of comfort to them. But he began by saying, I didn't tell you these terrifying bits earlier, but now it's time for you to, to hear these things. You know, I'm reminded of Revelation 12, where there's an amazing and appalling image. A woman is about to give birth to a son, and there's a dragon who is seeking to devour the boy the minute he's born. 
But through a series of events, the boy and the woman escape, and so in rage, the dragon seeks to devour all the woman's offspring, those who bear the testimony of Jesus. And whatever you make of that image, it surely points to the fact that Satan sought to destroy Jesus and that he failed, and now in rage, seeks to destroy the followers of Jesus. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, I didn't tell you about all this stuff earlier on, but now, on the eve of my suffering, standing as I do and staring at the stark reality of the cross that awaits me tomorrow, I have to tell you this stuff right now. It's going to be hard for you to hear it, but you must hear it. We go now to to verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? You know, what's interesting about verse 5 is that at the outset, it seems curious. Look back to John 13, 33, and back there, Jesus said, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And then after that, Peter asks, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus merely repeats himself, you can't come now, you'll come later. And then on to John 14, verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And the reason I make mention of these verses is because in our passage, the one that we're studying today, we might wonder why Jesus says to them, none of you asks me where I'm going, when in point of fact, they had been asking. But on the other hand, were they really asking? I mean, notice, would you, that that all they're asking is up until now, self-centered. They want to know what it means for them. How can you leave us now, they ask. We don't want to be without you now, they think. So if he just told them where he was going, well, then they could go there and everything would be fine. Do you see what I'm saying? They're not asking out of their concern for him, but out of their concern for themselves. And please don't condemn them for that. In many ways, it's just a natural response But at the same time, it does show us that at this moment, they've not yet come to that place in which they fully loved him. You know, at the heart of all their questions about where he's going was this understandable self-centeredness because they're panicked and they're worried and they're overwhelmed that this Passover night seems so very dark. I mean, Judas has left. I mean, where did he go? You know, are they going to be persecuted? They sense the loss of Jesus. He's going away. But none of them is asking Jesus, what's going to happen to you? Instead, they're overwhelmed with concern for themselves. And Jesus knows that. That's who his disciples are, at least at this stage. Now, listen carefully to his next words, verses 6 and 7. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So did you notice that Jesus isn't rebuking them for their self-centered concern? That's the nature of Jesus. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to be shown concern, but to show concern for others. It's remarkable. But you also know that the disciples must have had a very hard time at this moment. I mean, they're trying to buy into this statement. Is it to your advantage that I go away? I mean, how can Jesus' absence in any fashion be advantageous? And if we're truthful, we would concur with the disciples. I mean, I don't know about you, but there have been many occasions in my own life where I would have wished that Jesus would have been physically there to speak with me, then to minister with me and to interact with me and to comfort me and to give me courage. You know, I'm in many ways not unlike the disciples. 
I also can see how it might be of my benefit that I've never seen him, but that he has sent me his Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's good to know the reality of the Holy Spirit living within, but it doesn't seem better this way. And furthermore, there's another question that needs answering. I mean, why is it that the helper does not come until Jesus goes away? I mean, why can't I have both? I mean, why can't I have Jesus physically present and the Holy Spirit filling me? I mean, why must it be one or the other? And that must surely have been the disciples' question. And we know that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. I mean, surely the second and the third person of the Trinity can be with us at the same time. But what Jesus had in mind was the cross. He knows that the Holy Spirit has a specific role to play. He'll explain that in a little while, but we shouldn't get that strange image in our head that, you know, that Jesus and the Holy Spirit can't be in the same place at the same time. I mean, of course they can be. But what Jesus is really saying is that the Holy Spirit has a unique role to play. And that role won't begin until after he has completed the role that he is playing. It's about timing. And it's about the specific roles that Jesus and the Holy Spirit will uniquely play. So Jesus is simply saying that there's an order to the things that are going to happen. It's a, it's a divine order. It's planned by the Father before the world began. And this order is going to benefit you greatly. You'll soon come to understand the wisdom of the Father's plan and, and how this wisdom will become the source of great delight for you in the future. It is actually for your benefit that I go away. And clearly what Jesus requires of the 11 here is that they trust the Father's wisdom in this matter. Don't become so spooked by the present darkness that you fail to understand that at this moment, there's divine wisdom being played out. You know what strikes me is that the disciples we're facing is also what you and I face when we go through our struggles and heartaches and griefs. I mean, it is necessary that when we face these things that although we do struggle greatly, but we are called to rest in assurance that our Heavenly Father is guiding events with a greater wisdom than we can at the present moment actually grasp. Did you know that Back to the Bible Canada has a weekly video Bible teaching series? All videos, both archived and current, are easily accessible on the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel or online at backtothebible.ca. The videos offer the excellence of Bible teaching you've come to expect from Dr. John Newfeld, providing insight into God's Word, God's character, and the life He has called us to live. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. There you can also access past video series and programs, including our recent virtual worship event, The Gathering, 45 wonderful minutes of worship, Bible teaching, laughter, and encouragement. For more information or to support the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, would you call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Jesus is telling the disciples that he's going away. The helper is going to come. It's to their benefit that it happens just this way. So we need to understand that he's looking to transform the disciples from their present self-centered vision to a full-blown God-centered vision. Eventually, they're going to see something far greater than themselves, 
And it is this greater vision that's going to give them meaning and purpose and joy in their lives. And the greater vision will eventually equip them to bring the saving message of Jesus to the world, regardless of the personal cost that they'll pay. You know, that's why Pastor Valentine could speak so lovingly to his persecutor. He saw greater vision. And if you haven't grasped it, that's why you have heard the good news of Jesus. It's because of the apostles and then after them, men and women like them who brought the gospel to us. I mean, after all, we were at the ends of the earth in a culture so unlike the one that Jesus lived in and ministered in. And yet, we've heard the saving news of Jesus and we've come to believe. If you and I had the ability to see how it is that the good news came to us, we'd be amazed at the price that was paid so that the gospel could be heard. We're indebted to those who had not a self-centered vision, but a God-centered vision. There's so much to say about that. All of us need to be transformed from a self-centered to a God-centered vision. Let's do a little self-evaluation, shall we? Let's begin by talking about our prayer lives. I mean, many people have difficulty praying until something really bad happens. And many of our prayers are self-centered prayers. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with self-centered praying. I'm only saying it's insufficient. So we pray about our health and our jobs and our kids and our marriage and our finances and all the people that are close to us and the various desires that we have. And again, that's not wrong. But when the Holy Spirit fills us, see, we find ourselves with transformed prayers. I mean, soon we begin to pray about the welfare of God's kingdom and we begin to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then rather than simply praying those words, we become very specific that the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, soon we begin to investigate what the kingdom of God is and what the will of God is here on this earth. And soon we begin to, to pray for people in our cities, in our country, in our world. We might pray that it would be impossible to live in this country without being confronted with the claims of Christ. And soon we're staggered that there are men and women that are born in our land and grow up and live their lives in our cities. And when they die and face judgment, never once have they been approached with the claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I say all of this so that in truth, we might be ashamed. I mean, how could I have been praying about my arthritis or my university exams and my marriage and my finances, and still I've not been moved to tears and with great zeal over the fate of the lost who are all around me all of the time? Yeah, I do want us, all of us who know Christ, to be deeply ashamed and to repent of our callous disregard of this greater vision for the glory of God. Once we're transformed, then suddenly missions and evangelism and the proclamation of the gospel, that all becomes a passion that drives our lives forward. We begin to inquire, where's the gospel advancing? Where are believers suffering? What are the needs of the church in various parts of the world? How can I be involved? To what, dear Lord, are you calling me? But still, how is it to our advantage that Christ goes away. And the answer must be that while Jesus was on earth, see, he's only in one place at one time. Yeah, he was with the disciples. He met with them. He trained them. But the greater part of the human race had no advantage in that. But when he goes and the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit will transform these self-centered men into ambassadors for Jesus. The ministry of Jesus will now be transformed instead of him being at one place at one time. The ministry of Jesus is going to be multiplied all over the world. 
with a God-enhanced vision. See, there's more to what Jesus is telling them. While Jesus was with them, an honest assessment of the success of the ministry of the apostles, well, that was spotty. Yeah, at one point in time, they marveled at their success. They said, look, even the demons submit to us. And I'm speaking here specifically of that time that's recorded in, you know, in Luke 10. Jesus sent out the 72, preached the gospel in the various villages. And, and then they come back and they're excited. And they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And indeed, Jesus affirmed that. He did say, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I mean, so great was the impact of your ministry. I mean, those were heady moments indeed. I mean, those were things to treasure. And yet we also know that after that, uh, there were profound moments of unbelief and failure. And Peter, you're going to recall, once openly rebuked Jesus for speaking about the cross, the suffering Messiah, the need for atonement, the necessity that they might also suffer to bring this saving news. Well, that wasn't a part of their vision. They were still far too self-centered to be of any lasting good. But after the Spirit came, things were going to be remarkably different. So go to John 15, 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. We know that after the coming of the Spirit, the record of spotty effectiveness punctuated by major failures and reversals, that came to an end. I mean, one of the reasons for that was not only were the 12 bearing witness to Jesus, but the Holy Spirit was also bearing witness. And that's why the Holy Spirit is called the Helper. On their own, the disciples would never have been effective. But after Pentecost, wherever they went, the Holy Spirit was already bearing witness about Jesus. Let's get back to chapter 16. It's to your advantage that I go away, says Jesus. God has a divine ordering of things. I mean, first I go away, then the Holy Spirit comes, the one who helps and aids, he's going to come, he's going to make you effective in your mission to declare the gospel. So let's continue to read verses 8 to 11. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. See, did you notice that the Holy Spirit is not only bringing a change in the disciples, he's transforming their vision, but he's bringing a change to the world. He comes to convict the world. You know, there are those who argue that this word, convict, well, it conjures up a courtroom scene in which the Holy Spirit is in the world and he's presenting evidence from the Father and he convicts every human being and reveals to everyone their guilt that they bear before God. Now, that's one possible way of understanding that passage. But others suggested that the word convict should be understood not globally, but personally. The Holy Spirit will bring a conviction inside those who hear when the apostles are preaching. That is, while the apostles preach the word, the Holy Spirit is at work right at that moment so that some who are hearing are suddenly shown the depth and the gravity of their sin. You might think, for instance, of what happened on the day of Pentecost. You know, Luke tells us that while Peter was preaching, his listeners were, in the words of Luke, cut to the heart. They're overwhelmed with their guilt and their culpability in crucifying the Son of God. Up until that moment, it had never occurred to them how deep was their guilt before God. But now, as the Holy Spirit comes, they they cry out, what shall we do? 
I think that's exactly what Jesus promised the disciples. As they preached the good news, the Holy Spirit would be at work first convicting the world concerning sin, that they had violated God's laws. Then secondly, concerning righteousness, that suddenly the Holy Spirit opens their eyes. I mean, prior to that, they had thought God no different from themselves. I mean, God, they thought, simply let stuff slide. I mean, he's not filled with wrath because of their sin, but now suddenly the color drains from their faces and they realize they've underestimated God and they're convicted of the inevitability of judgment. Suddenly they see they can't escape God's courtroom after all, and they suddenly see in the present state that the outcome of the trial when they stand before God will be utter condemnation. Uh, As you want an example of that, consider Acts 24, verse 25. The passage simply says, and as he, that is Paul, reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix, that is, that's the man who's listening to Paul, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'm going to summon you. See, that's the transformed vision. Men were once concerned about themselves. They now become concerned for the gospel. Men who are spotty in their effectiveness become powerful because of the aid of the Spirit, and men and women who hear the gospel message are suddenly alarmed in their own hearts and say, who then can save me? My listener, this could be you. The glorious thing about what the Holy Spirit promises you, he'll transform you from a self-centered vision to a wide God-centered vision. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you that today. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you this about our prayer life. Is it possible without even being aware that most of our prayers tend to be self-centered? Well, they are because (laughs) we're at the center of ourselves. You know, I mean, I love to use the illustration that if you hear about uh, people uh, dying of hunger around the world, uh, you know, we think about that. But if somebody uh, gives us a slight or, you know, slanders us, we take that to heart far more than the sufferings of others. So, I mean, that's just a fact. However, I do know that this glory happens to us, that that God transforms our self-centered vision and he introduces us to something that's so much greater than ourselves. I'm gonna say we've never experienced joy, never, until we've been introduced to something greater than ourselves. Self-centered people are self-centeredly unhappy and not joyous. So enter into the joy of the Lord and enter into his fellowship. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus and His People, right here on Back of the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hey, have you heard? Our free kids mobile game app, Bible ABCs for Kids, has some great new updates making it easier for you to enjoy time with your children as they dive deeper into God's Word. Let your child enjoy tracing uppercase and lowercase letters while animated friends cheer them on. With the added feature of descriptive poems to help your kids better understand the Bible. In a time where most learning is happening online, Bible ABCs for Kids helps our children continue to grow spiritually and in their understanding of God and His unconditional love for each of us. Download the updated version of Bible ABCs for Kids from the App Store and Google Play Store today. Or for more information, 
just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.